Hello everyone. Um, this is Tara and this is God Talk with Tara. For those of you who stumbled here by mistake somehow, uh, the rest of you I'm assuming already know why you're here and who I am. Um, so I was joking with someone earlier about, you know, what was going to happen the first time God told me to show up here and uh, didn't give me something to say and that we were going to sit in silence. Tonight I don't think is that night, but I do have to say I am really leaning into trusting the Lord tonight and trusting that he's going to show up. Um, so far as I've been doing this, I have had a fairly clear picture of what it is he wanted me to say before I started. Uh, and tonight that is not entirely the case. So I'm hoping that I'm not going back over something he's already had me say, but we will see. And if we are, then I will assume that we need that message more than once, which I'm, a, I'm thinking that may be very true um, because we tend to forget. So let's go ahead tonight and pray as always, and then we'll dive in to see what God has to say tonight. Lord God, thank you so much for your word, for your people, for your grace, for, for your spirit, Lord. I ask tonight that you would make me small, that you would magnify yourself, Lord God in your people, in me, in those who are listening. Lord, I pray that your spirit would blow like a fresh wind across our hearts and minds and souls, that you would blow away the apathy, the weariness, um, the slumber that so often creeps in without us being aware, that your Holy Spirit would breathe fresh on us. And I pray, Lord, that you would open ears and minds and hearts to hear what you have to say, and that you would give me words that you need spoken, that there would be none of me and all of you tonight. We ask, Father, this for your honor and your glory in the name of your son. Amen. So tonight, well, this morning, um, so I participate every Tuesday morning in a Zoom class um, with a friend of mine, Warren Latham, who is a retired UMC pastor who um, got called back into service by the Lord in the new Global Methodist Church. And he is a humble and amazing man. And I have been delighted to be able to participate in this. Um, I call it a class, and the reality is, is that it is more of a discussion of a book called The Next Methodism. Um, this morning we were talking about sacraments. We were talking about communion and baptism and why Methodists approach that with the kind of reverence that we do and how we see that in our theological understanding. And a phrase came up in the midst of that conversation that the Lord just made jump out in my brain and, and prompted me to write down, but nothing else has come from that today. So I'm going to draw a bit on those conversations this morning. And he did give me some scripture to go with that. So we'll, we'll get there. Um, but the phrase that he gave me as we were having conversations, particularly about the Lord's Supper, is that for us as Christians, when we come to God's table, it is an offering of his immediate presence, the immediate presence of God. 
Um, in my early apologetics classes, I heard of something from, mm, I think his name's Charles Murray, but I might be really wrong about that. Uh, he posited something called the imminent frame and that this is one of the reasons we struggle as Christians in this world right now is that um, modernism in particular and the enlightenment and several other philosophical movements over the last couple of centuries has imposed upon people this concept of an imminent frame, that the only thing that exists is what we can see and touch and taste and feel and smell um, and that there's nothing past that. And it is described as like living in a single level house where you can't really go outside and all you see is what is in the room around you. And so you begin, or in the building around you, you can walk around in the building, right? But there are no stairs. There's nothing above in your mind. Um, and so you begin to believe that that's all that there is because it's all that you've ever experienced. And, and this is an imminent frame that we as Christians sort of live in by default. Um, over the last couple of centuries, uh, scientific discovery has been touted as having demystified the world, uh, that it is, we have um, removed all of the fairies from the fairy tales. There is no longer a concept of the supernatural. There is this sense that all that is, is what is right here with us. And because of that, we have a hard time accepting God because we think of him. And this is also part of that same mental movement in the enlightenment. We think of God as some distant watchmaker who set the world in motion and then took his hands off and left us to our own devices. And so there is nothing beyond what we can see. And even if we believe in God, he is not present in the here and the now. Now, most of us as Christians would say we don't actually believe that, that we believe what the Bible tells us about God being near to us. But the fact of the matter is, is we live our lives frequently uh, as though what the world tells us about God and about nature and the supernatural is true, that there is nothing beyond what we can touch and sense with our senses and understand with our science. So, God is a supernatural God. He's not a natural God. He's not confined to our imminent frame. But more importantly than that, and this is the thing that, that really struck me this morning, is he is also not a distant watchmaker God who wound us up and set us off. The scripture describes to us a God who is present. Now, in the Old Testament, we see this. We see this with God descending on the mountain to meet with Moses. We see this with God coming and talking to Elijah. We see this with God visiting with Abraham to make the promise that he was going to have the promised child with Isaac and overhearing Sarah laughing. Um, we see this with Joshua 
when God tells him, be strong and courageous for I am with you and I will go with you. We see it with Moses where God tells him to go and that he will be with him. We see an immediate, imminent God. We see a God who is present in the here and the now in the world around us. And as we move forward through the scripture, through the prophets who are told that God is with them, that he will go with them so that as they go speaking his message, that they will have the very presence of the Lord with them. We see this in dark and dire spaces throughout all of the Old Testament. And then we see something new. In the beginning of Matthew, the imminent presence of God goes from being spiritual manifestations or what we call theophanies in the Old Testament. It goes from an angel of the Lord, which is frequently the presence of God within a body that is sort of human but is noticeably fear inducing because you always hear them. <laughs> Do not be afraid. Um, we see the presence of God in the Old Testament sort of infrequently and overwhelmingly when he comes to be with his people. And it's usually targeted towards a few people that he comes and comes close to at any given point in time. So with Moses, the Israelites were like, Oh, Father, no, don't come, don't come close to us. You know, God, stay far away from us. We are afraid of what will happen if we get too close to you. Moses, go talk to him for us and tell us what he has to say. And so God in the Old Testament frequently comes in a form and a fashion that pulses with the glory of the Lord. Um, you see this maybe most clearly when the tabernacle is built. And it's all built exactly to God's specifications with the gold and the silver that's been given to them by the Egyptians that they've melted down to, to create this tabernacle with these very exacting directions. And as the tabernacle is completed and erected, Moses goes to enter and he can't because the glory of the Lord has filled the space. And it is so pure and so powerful and so fully God present that it makes it so that humanity cannot approach because of their sinful state. That we cannot come into community with God. And so the Lord makes himself able to come into contact with Moses and with some of the others over the years through these various rituals that that purify them, that put them in a posture of being able to be in the presence of God without that present damage, presence damaging them, right? Well, in Matthew, we see something different. We see that the spirit of the Lord comes to a young woman and an angel comes and says, you will have a child and he will be the son of the living God. And so Jesus is born as God in man fully divine, fully human, he, he pours out himself, God, God on high, the creator of all the universe, the one through whom all things were made, pours himself into this small baby 
so that men can once again dwell with him. And so God has become imminent within this imminent frame. God has, has come from that great distance of, of being vast and glorious and amazing and or majestic to being this small child so that men would be able to once again come into the presence of God and be filled with the presence of God through the sacrifice of this perfect lamb. Through the sacrifice of God the Son, through the self-sacrifice of the creator of the universe. And so in Jesus, we have this immediacy of the presence of God. He is immediately present in the world in a way that he hadn't been before, in a way that opened doors that had been closed since Adam and Eve first decided that they were going to pursue knowledge on their own, that they were going to eat from the tree that they'd been forbidden, that they were going to be disobedient and rebel against the presence of God with them for the first time in all that time. God has once again come to reopen that pathway to walking with God directly, to being directly led and taught and filled with the presence of God. Now, we go through Jesus's life and we go through Jesus's ministry and he comes to the end and he's crucified, he's hung on a cross, he's buried in a tomb, and then he rises. Nobody saw that one coming, except God. He rises and he comes to his disciples and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, shortly after this, <laughs> Jesus ascends into heaven and he's not with them physically anymore. Um, so the immediacy of Christ would seem to have been removed, right? Death didn't remove the immediacy of Christ, but the ascension did. He was no longer bodily with his disciples. And so it would kind of seem that we were back to that same situation that you had with Moses and Elijah and the other prophets, that God was once again far away. That God had come to reopen the pathway for us to be with him and to be present with him and to be able to learn directly from him without being destroyed. And yet Jesus is now gone. But here he is promising, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the age, presumably, as we understand it and in Bible scholarly language, is the end of that age would have been when Jesus returns, which hasn't happened yet. So we're still in that age where Jesus says he's with us always. Now we can go back though and figure out what it is that Jesus was talking about because in John 14, 15 to 16 and in many other places 
in John chapters 14 to like 17, Jesus talks about what he means with, I'm going to be with you. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus is promising here the Holy Spirit that his spirit, that God himself will come to indwell the people of God. All the people of God, not just the one, not just he's not just going to come meet with Moses in the tent of, of meeting. That everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ, who believes in him and who fo follows him and loves him, that the father is going to send the spirit to dwell in them. And that's what it says in other parts of the uh, of these passages in John is that the spirit will come to dwell in you. The spirit will come to lead you into all truth. The spirit will come to empower you to do these things that I have been doing and greater things even than these, because I will ask the father to send you the helper to be able to come and do these things in you and through you and with you. There is going to be an immediacy of Jesus Christ in you. That's not some far distant when I die and go to heaven. It's not some far distant change. It's not some later on down the line. Jesus says that when we call on the name of Christ, when we believe in him, when we are his disciples, when we follow him, that the father will give us another helper because he asked. And that that helper will be with us forever. Now there's other writings throughout the New Testament that talk about how it is we can't do the work of God without the power of God in us. That as Christians, if we're walking around trying to do things in our own power, we're going to fall miserably on our faces and we are, we're going to fail. Because you can't do the work of the kingdom of God with the power of of the kingdom of man. So we're coming back to this imminent frame, right? So scripture tells us that this place that we can see and touch and feel is not the whole of reality. As a matter of fact, if we really look at scripture from the beginning to the end, reality is a good thing. Don't, don't hear this wrong. Nature is a good thing. God created all of creation. And when he created all of creation, he said that it was good. And when he created man, he said that it was very good. Okay. So it's not that all of creation is horrible and terrible and wicked. It is that it has been corrupted by our rejection of God's original design. And so everything is a little sideways and God is in the process of renewing and restoring that, right? He is bringing about the kingdom of God here on the earth. And as he does that, eventually it will come to a place of a new Jerusalem. We talked about this yesterday, right? So the reality is, is that we as Christians are called to walk in the power and the strength of the kingdom. But in order for us to do that, we actually have to believe that there is such a thing. We have to believe that there is such a place as heaven. 
and that it is a spiritual realm that can be brought here on earth as it is in heaven, that God's will can be done here on earth as it is in heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit that God promised to send us through Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the Father will send the Spirit to dwell in us so that we can do even greater things than he does. Jesus was pretty awesome. And he did amazing things. He did them for the glory of the Father. And that's the same purpose that we have in doing these things. So God is not going to send me the Holy Spirit so I can do parlor tricks. And he's not going to send me the Holy Spirit so I can do wish fulfillment on my own behalf. This isn't the point. The point is to bring glory to God the Father. And to bring him into the presence of those who are in need of him, that there is an immediate presence of God available to all who will call Christ Lord and believe. So when we as Christians partake in communion, depending on what denomination you might be in, you have a lot of different ideas about what happens to the bread and the wine and what the purpose of communion is and, and what, is it a symbol? Is it a, is it something else? Um, and I will say that what you believe about communion is actually not a salvation issue and it should not be something that divides the church. And yet at the same time, if we do this by rote, if we take communion by rote, if we do this with merely a thought that it is a commemorative action of a long ago thing that occurred, we miss something that is promised by Christ. Now, I will not pretend that I can tell you what happens in communion. <laughs> I can't say to you that I know exactly the mystery of, of how all of that works. Um, I can say that I'm not Catholic and I don't believe in transubstantiation. I don't think I'm eating physical flesh and blood during communion, but I am also not um, of the opinion that it is nothing more than a symbol that has no spiritual significance to it. I believe that there is something that happens in communion when you expect it. Now, we talked about that before, that concept of expectation. When you expect something from God, he typically will show up. If you expect the immediate presence of God in the taking of the bread and the wine, if you expect the immediate presence of the Spirit to be in that place because he has ordained that as a sacrament for you to, to come and look for him there, to meet him there, then God will show up and he will bring transformation. So I've been in a couple of different churches over the years and I came back to God in a Methodist church. And I still didn't really have any concept of what we were talking about when we would do communion. I loved the great Thanksgiving. I I like liturgy. I'm, I'm that kind of person. <laughs> I 
I like a lot of things. Actually, anytime I get together with people who love God, I am generally happy and content and in my element. Um, and yet there is a part of my heart that deeply um, resonates with liturgies, especially liturgies that have been written from pieces of scripture um, from understanding great themes in scripture. So I love the great Thanksgiving in Methodism because it talks about God from the beginning all the way through to the end. It talks about him brooding over the waters and, and the creation. And it talks about Jesus and it talks about the life that he lived and the death that he died and the life that he took back up. And, and so I love this because it is a thing that connects us through 2,000 years, all the way back to those first disciples who sat with Jesus at the Lord's Supper and were given this command to do this in remembrance of him. There is a, a unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. You see this in Ephesians where Paul says to maintain the unity of the Spirit. My unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ does not come from me. It does not come from, there is nothing on earth that would unify me with some of the folks that I know to be good, solid Christians, but that we interact like oil and water. There's nothing in me that would allow for me to be unified with the people of God. But there is something in me now that would allow me to be unified with the people of God. And that is the Holy Spirit. He comes to us and he brings unity in the church and he brings love in our hearts that we can't manage on our own. He helps us to love God with everything that we are and to love one another with everything that we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves, he helps us to do this and he meets us in the things that we do together. He unifies us over time and distance and space through the common practices and the common beliefs that we hold. And communion and baptism are actually two of the strongest commonalities between the denominations. There are all kinds of attitudes and ideas and thoughts on what the significance of these two things are, but the Christian denominations all agree that baptism and communion or Eucharist or Lord's Supper, or whatever you want to call it, that baptism and communion are sacramental, that they're commanded by Christ, that they are given to the church to unify them with the spirit and to mark them as belonging to Jesus. If we want to come to a place of revival, if we want to come to a place of awakening, if we want to come to a place where this, the, the body of Christ, the church of God, the bride of Christ behaves in the world in the way that it is supposed to and walks in the power that he promises in this section of John where he's talking to the disciples and telling them what's coming and saying to them, you are going to do amazing things. And then he's proven right. Not so very long later in the book of Acts, you begin to see them walking in this. You begin to see them praying and walls shaking. You begin to see them speaking in tongues. You begin to see them 
adding to their numbers daily. You begin to see them preaching with boldness and healing and casting out demons and doing the things that Jesus had done and even, even more. So we know that this promise is here. We know that Christ calls us into it. And yet in order for them to function this way, in order for them to walk in the power of the spirit, in order for them to be able to do the things God called them to do and to build the kingdom of God here on earth, to walk in the inaugurated kingdom. They had to believe that the spirit was present in them and accessible to them. They had to be able to know that God had promised them that he could call on them or that they could call on him in the here and now, that they didn't have to wait until they were dead and in heaven to be able to call on the name of the Lord and to have him answer. Jesus says, I will ask my father and he will give it to you. Jesus says, ask me anything in my name and I will give it to you for the glory of the Father in heaven. And he says, ask anything to my Father in my name, and he will give it to you for the glory of the Son, which will point people to the glory of the Father in heaven. The point of us as the church is to glorify the Lord, and he wants to do that. But we have to believe that God is present and immediate, that he's right here, right now, and that we can ask and he will give to glorify the Son to the glory of the Father. We need to find ways. If you can't bring yourself to believe that the Holy Spirit moves within the elements of communion to be present in those elements and draw you into unity with God in those places and with one another. If you can't quite begin to see it that way, you don't have to. But you do have to come to a place where you recognize and understand that you are indwelled by the spirit of the living God, that within you, you hold the Holy Spirit who blew the door off of the tomb and raised Jesus from the dead and lit the fire of the church that has lasted for 2000 years that is carrying forward the promise of God, that the kingdom of God will be here on earth as it is in heaven. You have to come to a place of believing that. If you want awakening, that's what does it. And if you're not in that place, if you don't believe that yet, then I encourage you to pray the prayer of the father of the child who had epileptic seizures. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because my friends, Jesus is right here, right now. He promised that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Hold on to that tonight and then go walk in it tomorrow. Father God, I ask that you would open the minds and the eyes of your people to see your presence. 
Lord, I pray that you would use the means of grace, that you would use your scripture, that you would use your spirit, that you would use one another to tell each other that you are present in the here and the now, that you are immediately present with your people, that you are here as you have promised throughout all the ages that you would be. That you have put each one of us here for a purpose to build your kingdom. That you've called us to be your ambassadors, but you do not send us alone. That you have promised that you will go with us. Father, I pray that your people would know the presence of your spirit. That every time, Father, we come to one another, the spirit in me speaks to the spirit in you. And the spirit in you speaks to the spirit in the next person. And that we would just resonate, Lord God with the beauty and the power and the love of your presence in us. Father, we pray right now, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Father. Praying in Jesus' name. Amen.